Well, we begin a new series today as we take the next few weeks to study the book of Jude. The book of Jude. So let me pray for us and we'll, we'll get going. Lord Jesus, help us now by giving us understanding of your word, understanding and insight, but also resolve, resolve to follow you with zeal, with, uh, with love that you deserve. In your name we ask this, amen. A few questions probably spring to your mind when I say we're going to study the book of Jude, such as, where is Jude? Jude has the honor of being the next to last book in your Bible. So for those of you who actually still carry physical paper printed Bibles, it's all the way at the back. Of course, if you're using a device of some sort, then it's much easier because you can just scroll, but it'll be right next to Revelation, okay? You also might be wondering, who is Jude? Who is Jude? Well, the name Jude is a form of a common name in the New Testament, Judas. For example, Judas Iscariot or Judas the Lesser, one of the other disciples of Jesus. Judas, of course, is just a form of the name Judah, which is a very common name and popular name in the Bible. The author of the letter of Jude identifies himself in two ways in verse 1. So if you've got your text open before you there, look at verse 1. He identifies himself as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The servant of Jesus Christ is a title that certainly describes someone who is owned by Jesus Christ or subservient to Jesus Christ. But the title servant also identified someone who was a representative of his owner's or his superior's authority. So a servant of Caesar was not someone to be disregarded or ignored because he was someone less than Caesar or he was merely a, a slave in Caesar's household. Someone with the title servant of Caesar was to be respected and even obeyed because a servant would be acting on his owner's behalf with his superior's authority not his own authority. So this is a, a title that should probably even be capitalized, capital S, not for deity, but just as a, as a title, a formal title, servant of Jesus Christ. So Jude is a follower of Jesus Christ and Lord, and he writes as Jesus' designated representative. He writes with Jesus' authority. Jude also calls himself you can see the brother of James. And this would be James who became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He wrote our letter of James in the New Testament. James was a half-brother of Jesus, which means that Jude is also one of Jesus' younger brothers who came to believe in him after his resurrection and then became a teacher and a leader in the early church. He is mentioned, by the way, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? 
So these are the crowds who are asking in Nazareth, don't we know this guy? As Jesus has begun to preach and reveal himself, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. He says, no prophet has honor in his hometown. This is, we know this guy. He grew up here. And these are his brothers and these are his sisters. And Judas is listed as one. This is Jude, the author of our letter. And now we know who Jude is and we know where his letter is. But you might also be asking yourself, have I ever heard a message from Jude? Because chances are, many of you probably haven't. The reasons you may not have ever heard a sermon or a message from Jude is, for one thing, it's a small letter, and it's written to address a very specific situation in a church where false teachers are subverting the work of the gospel in the members of the church. And so there's not a lot of teaching. That is, Jude doesn't uh, do a lot of unpacking of Christian teaching and doctrine. While he focuses on the faith, the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, he doesn't spend time unpacking the Christian faith. And because of the crisis of the false teaching has caused in this church, Jude's letter is very severe. It's almost confrontational. It is filled with warnings as he highlights coming judgment for false teachers and those who would fall victim to their deceptions. So it makes it a, a challenging letter to preach, makes it a challenging letter to hear. It probably isn't going to make a very popular sermon series in many places, churches that are driven by entertainment and filling seats and hype will never get to the book of Jude because nobody ever feels the need to be warned. God in his grace and his mercy warns us in spite of our own uh, tendencies to want to stay in the positive Nobody feels the need to be warned. But just to give you an overview then of the letter, you can see in verse 3 that Jude tells us why he writes. He explains that he writes out of necessity. He is appealing to his readers and to us to contend for the faith. This is his purpose for writing. This is the central message of the letter. Contend for the faith that was once delivered. The reason, according to verse 4, is we must contend for the faith because certain people have crept in unnoticed. In other words, there were a, a subgroup of people in the church that had snuck in, that had infiltrated the church, and the essence of their error is twisting God's grace into an excuse to live immorally. So though there is not a lot of doctrine that's unpacked 
in this little short letter, the key apostolic teaching, the key teaching about the gospel that is undermined is God's grace. What does it mean to receive grace? What does it mean to live under grace? According to Jude, these false teachers who have sneaked into the church are undermining this grace. They're twisting it to mean something it doesn't mean. That is what he is going to expose. Verses 5 through 16, which are the main part of the letter, Jude equips us to contend for the faith by exposing and denouncing these certain people who have crept in unnoticed. Their destiny is certain and horrific judgment, and Jude provides a a profile of, of what these false teachers are like, these grace twisters. And he uses a number of Old Testament examples to illustrate how God deals with false teachers who pretend to speak for him and mislead his people. Then Jude issues a call to persevere, hold fast, stay true, keep yourselves, and for the church to rescue anyone who has fallen into this deceptive teaching. Try to save others, keep them from falling into the deception. Lastly, he closes with a doxology, a word of glory and praise focused on God's sovereign power to keep his people, to preserve them. So these teachers then, these deceivers, have charmed their way into the church. They are participating in the church's gatherings. They are participating in the church's fellowship. They were showing up at their barbecues in the summer. They were... They were joining community groups. They were involved. They were, as we call, plugging in to the life of the church. They were part of the community. And they were doing all these things while they subtly led people into immorality and created divisions. Therefore, Jude writes urgently and passionately. But the letter presumes something that we can't take for granted in our time and place. And it complicates it a little bit as we look at it. In fact, we could say this to be true of much of the New Testament because much of the New Testament is written to warn us and to keep us from error, from false teachings. But it presumes something that we can't take for granted. Because Jude writes with the assumption that doctrine, teaching, matters in the first place. That it matters what the content of your faith is. One of the great delusions, which is demonic in its origin, one of the great demonic delusions of our day is that doctrine doesn't matter. It isn't just the promotion of any particular false teaching. It is the promotion of the idea that belief in and of itself, having conviction, is bad. Even 
wrong. This is why people can speak of faith very generally and it be okay. As long as it's something personal and as long as it's something undefined. We see it in uh, news interviews all the time. We read it in, in blurbs online. It's just, it's just faith kept me, kept me uh, straight, kept me focused. It was my faith that got me through. But if you define what that faith is or who that faith is in, you cross a line. It no longer becomes personal. Now you have somehow become uh, an advocate. You're somehow pushing it on other people. We hear athletes say this all the time. It's, it's about faith or they sometimes will mention God. And not, no doubt, I'm not saying that those are all false. Certainly there are good, strong Christian believers in professional athletics and other fields that will give testimony at times. Some of them are very, uh, very forward in using Jesus' name. And I'm, I'm grateful for that if their life matches, matches their claim. But, but this general just claiming of faith And so this idea that doctrine doesn't matter is an absurdity. In fact, there's a a book recently written. I have not finished it. I've only begun it, but it's called God is Not One. Now, you know the the well-known Jewish statement at the heart of Judaism, the Lord our God is one. He is one God. That is the Shema, that is Deuteronomy chapter 6. This book is not talking about that. This book is an exposition of the main religions of our world. And the argument that the author makes, and he is not a Christian, by the way. The argument that the author makes is that there is no way we can take Christianity and Islam and Judaism and Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and say they're all the same. And he's not a Christian. He's just pointing out the absurdity of saying that all of these religions worship the same God, that they all have the same message in the end. He shows very clearly that they don't. But this absurd idea that, that having conviction, that having belief is wrong in and of itself has put our neighbors our co-workers, our friends, our families into a moral dilemma. Because we know, as the human race, we know that there is right and there is wrong. And we know that it's necessary to maintain right and wrong, to restrain evil. This is why when we hear reports of mass killings, we can shake our heads and mourn and go, that is wrong. That is evil. But our cultures made it incoherent to even use the word evil. Why do you get to define it as evil? Why do I get to define it as evil? Why would anybody get to define anything as evil? Moral relativism is cultural suicide. And we're seeing that played out in our day. 
moral relativism, this, to say right and wrong are not fixed, but that right and wrong are up to each person's, each individual's interpretation and their freedom. That's cultural suicide. But you see, in the world that Jude writes and that the New Testament has written, the audiences, the readers did not have that kind of relativism. The idea of having convictions and having beliefs was taken for granted. That's not so in our case. But we as Christians understand that the word Christian means something. Being a Christian inherently means holding to certain truths believing those truths and living according to those truths. You can't love the scriptures and love God and know Christ and live the Christian life without conviction, without believing a body of truth. This is why doctrine, Christian teaching, is so important. Yes, it is possible to have knowledge. It's possible to know theology, to know doctrine, to be able to find verses of Scripture. It's possible to have all of that in the head and not live it out, to live a fractured life, a spiritually fractured life. That is possible. It's done all the time. And to some degree, we all do it because we all know much more about the Scriptures and who God is than we are able to live out faithfully. But this is why doctrine and Christian teaching is so important. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 here, beginning in verse 11. It's a passage that's familiar, I think, to us. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to build up the body of Christ? Until we all attain, verse 13, to the unity of the faith, the faith, not just unity of faith, but the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of Doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What defines childhood here? What defines being children? In other words, an immature Christian. Being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine having no conviction, having no roots, having no stability in what is true and what is false. That is the definition of someone who is a child spiritually, who is not maturing or mature yet in the person of Christ. This is someone who is susceptible to human cunning, to craftiness, to deceit deceitful messages. Paul says this is the purpose that the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers have been given to the church. 
The equipping then is not just, hey, here are the tools you need to go and do ministry. The equipping has to do with the maturing of the body, the instruction and the teaching, which are not just cerebral, but living out of life that is necessary to not be blown around by every wave and wind of doctrine. This is why Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 centers on the warning, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Now, of all the things that Paul could focus on, as he's telling the Ephesian elders goodbye, you may remember Paul is on his way. He has stopped in Miletus as a shore, and the Ephesian elders have come down from the city of Ephesus to meet him on the beach to say goodbye because he's just passing through. He's not going to stop and stay there. He had already spent a year and a half, three years actually in Ephesus, a year and a half in Corinth, three years he was in Ephesus. He's already... He's invested in himself, but he's saying goodbye to them. He knows it's the last time. Of all the things that he could say to them, it's a warning. And of all the warnings that he could give them, it is a warning about what? False teachers, the twisting of the truth. Jesus himself prepared the apostles by warning them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 and 16 Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. The fruits are exactly what Jude is going to expose. So I've kind of gone in reverse order here. The mission to teach and defend the truth, right doctrine, was established by Jesus. And the warning against error and those who would teach false doctrine... Thus, it was preeminent for the apostles, as illustrated in Acts chapter 20, where Paul is saying, whatever you do, guard the flock from false teaching. And then it was passed on to the elders and the pastors and the teachers to help the body of Christ, the church, to maturity. And then here comes Jude. And Jude calls all of us as God's people to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So this is the legacy, you could say, a legacy given to us as God's people to contend for the faith by faithfully living out the truth, not falling into the immoral living that comes with the twisting of God's truth. And Jude writes to warn those who mislead God's people into error and immorality that there is certain and devastating judgment for deceivers and those who will follow them. So for just the remainder of our time today, we want to look at Jude's greeting in verses 1 and 2. And I want you to see how you are ready 
to contend for the faith. You are qualified. You are rooted, grounded. You stand on solid ground as God's people to contend for the faith. And here's why. First of all, you are called. You are called, verse 1. To those who are called, when God called you, he gave you new life. He awakened your will to respond to him. God's call in your life and mine is his grace initiative. It's his initiating in his power and grace to bring us out of darkness into light, out of death into life. When we were spiritually dead, when we were without any ability to desire to know him or to belong to him, God called us. It is the exercise of his power to bring sinners to himself. As Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. So this calling of us is God's sovereign work outside of us. And it's not just that we haven't earned or deserved this call. That is true. It is that we haven't engineered it. We didn't we didn't somehow possess the spark that began the interest in God. And when we look at human experience, we know that people seek. In fact, some of you may look at your own life and say, when I came to Christ, I was seeking. I was seeking God. I was trying to understand. And I would say to you that you were seeking God because he was calling you. That had he not been calling you, you would not have sought him. You would have sought the delusion. You would have sought the lie. It is only God's call that awakens us spiritually. That's because of our our condition as rebels, as sinners who need grace. God has to move first. God has to initiate. And he has. And so Paul is reminding Timothy, remember, he has saved us. He has called us by his own purpose and grace. That is what is moving it. Romans 8, verse 29 and verse 30 tell us that God's calling is part of an unbreakable chain of salvation in your life. You may not always feel secure. You may wonder at times when you struggle with sin where your heart really is. You may even doubt your salvation. But listen to what Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 say. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there is this relationship. Those God foreknew established a relationship with. He also predestined. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there is this chain. And God never starts the process. He never fixes any links in the chain and then abandons it. It is an unbreakable chain. And he keeps it at every step. For you to be called means that you belong to God who has made you part of his eternal purposes. Jude is saying that this ought to move you to walk with God, to follow him in faithfulness and in holiness. It begins with this call. Your confidence in God's goodness your confidence in his truth and the strength to contend for the faith is all rooted in his calling of you. You were called to those who were called. Secondly, you were loved. You were loved, still in verse one, to those who were called, beloved in God the Father. Beloved means that You are in a relationship with God as a father, and that relationship is defined by his love for you as his child. That's what identifies you. It's what marks you. You are beloved in God the Father. So God's call brought you inside his love. As one who belongs to him, he has set you uh, apart. He has set his affection on you. He sees you. He cares for you. He is active in your life. He is active on your behalf. You are beloved in God the Father. And again, Jude is establishing us. He is rooting us to fight for the faith. In fact, his thoughts here reflect Jesus' words, I think, in In John chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, as the Father has loved me, watch the exchange of relationship. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments. When Jude says, contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, he is saying, obey Jesus' commandments. Stay inside his commandments. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So if Jesus keeps God's commandments and abides in the father's love, and you keep Jesus's commandments and abide in his love, then you are found in God's commandments and in God's loves as well, right? The images are almost overwhelming. That's why at Crossway we have as part of our our core commitments, obey the truth. We obey the truth. We do that because obedience is not just checking off a box or jumping through a hoop. It is abiding in Jesus' love. That's what obeying the truth is. It's the same thing according to Jesus. That's how we abide in his love. That's what Jude is saying. You are beloved in God. Stay there. Abide in him. 
So being loved is known when we abide. When we remain in him, we are beloved in God the Father. Thirdly, you are kept. You are kept. So you were called, you are loved, you are kept for Jesus Christ. What does he mean, kept for Jesus Christ? Well, kept means preserved. Uh, maybe you could say safeguarded for Jesus Christ. Paul declared in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how he connects keeping with calling. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. So there is a connection between this keeping and this calling. And the picture is something like God has called us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has delivered us to the Father. The Father will then deliver us back to Jesus at his coming. When he returns as a, as a gift or as a treasure. And we will be at that time blameless. We will be kept blameless. How are you and I blameless? Because we're found in Jesus. We have Jesus' blamelessness. We have his righteousness. Well, how can we be presented as blameless then? By staying in him. By staying in him. You might even say, as we look at Jude verse 1, it is Jesus the Son who has loved us in God the Father. It is God the Father who keeps us for Jesus the Son. So it's like the Son and the Father have this deal with each other. That this is what they're going to do. We'll look more at this rich and deep teaching of what it means to be kept and keeping at the end of the letter because Jude echoes this again at the end when he talks about God's sovereign keeping of us. But we are called, we're loved, we are kept for Jesus Christ. And lastly, we are blessed, verse two. We are blessed. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This reflects a common way of greeting somebody in, in a letter, and this is a letter. But Jude, like all the New Testament writers, uses the greeting to reinforce truth and identity, to reinforce truth, doctrine, and also the identity of God's people. It is we who are called, beloved, and kept for Jesus Christ, who can know the blessings of mercy, peace, and love. God's mercy is for our struggle with sin and guilt. Because Jude knows that we're not going to be perfect, we're not going to be sinless, we are going to struggle with sin. We are going to face conviction. We are going to need ongoing forgiveness and mercy. And he says, may God's mercy be multiplied to you. God's peace 
is for the midst of hardship and doubt. When confronted with life and circumstances that would, that would seem to say that what God has promised, what God has revealed as true, can't be possibly true, like his love for me in the midst of this very painful situation, may God's peace be multiplied to you. That there is peace. And God's love. May God's love be multiplied to you to comfort, to strengthen, to sanctify you, to set you apart to him as those beloved in God the Father. So these blessings, God's mercy, God's peace, God's love, Jude wants our experience of these blessings to be ever-increasing. May they be multiplied. And when, you've, when you feel like you've exhausted God's mercy, may it just be more mercy. And when you feel like things are so hard, especially when you're contending for the faith, and there is turbulence, and there's conflict, may God's peace just increase. And you feel like you've gotten to the end of his peace, may it be multiplied to you. And when you feel isolated, when you feel like you've lost, when you feel like you're separated, may God's love be multiplied to you. May you know his love. Jude declares this blessing knowing that we who are called and loved and kept need God's supply. We need supernatural provision, mercy, peace, love, if we're going to faithfully contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. And God's supply is always being multiplied to us. And I think this, I think Jude also is reminding us that his severe warnings in this letter, these severe descriptions of, of judgment, God's wrath on those who would twist his truth and undermine him, and deceive his people and mislead them, that these severe warnings in this letter are aimed at our good. They are aimed at our wholeness. They are for our blessing. That we who are called and loved and kept will not be deceived by counterfeit satisfactions that we will not fall to the lies of, of false joys, but that we will continue to know true mercy, true peace, and true love by remaining in Christ, by contending for the faith. Let's pray. Father, your kindness and your blessing, they do overflow to us. And we thank you today that you are faithfully multiplying mercy and, and peace and love to us, your people. That you are supplying all that we need 
to walk with you according to the truth, to walk with you according to the gospel that we've received. Indeed, may your mercy and peace and your love be multiplied to Crossway Fellowship. Amen.